And would you receive another story from Matthew's genealogy? This is the first eight verses from the first chapter of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Those took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Milan and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The book of Ruth is an old, old story. It's an ancient story. It is rich with meaning, and I believe it is also rich with hope. It's an idyllic story. In this story, there are no flawed or bad people, and that's unusual for a story that lasts. So many of our classics, you know, have a villain or an evil witch, and there is no villain in this story. There are simply good people. And this, I think, makes it easy to identify with the characters, which just might be the power of this story for our day. Because we can consider Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, and Boaz, and think, yeah, I can get them. I can get why they would say, or feel, or do what they do. I heard Rob Bell claim that identifying with other people is a weak spiritual muscle in our day and age. We don't have to do it when we connect with one another online. We really don't have to seek to understand one another when we're on Facebook or Twitter. In fact, what gets posted on the internet gets more traction when it's hot, when it's aggressive, when we're proving somebody else wrong. It seems to go further. And so then it becomes easy and even desirable if we can make caricatures of one another or sweeping generalizations about each other instead of doing the hard work of understanding, seeking to get each other. But Ruth is really an easy catch. It's not a difficult reach. You don't have to work hard to get the people in this story. These are good people who are faced with living in ordinary situations, and I can easily see a part of myself reflected in them. So thinking on Ruth, thinking on this story is a good way to build that empathy muscle. 
You may not think that you're working out right now, but you are. You're building your empathy muscle. The story of the book of Ruth is set in the days when the judges ruled. That's the first verse of this story, in the days when the judges ruled. And the days of the judges in the Bible, well, they don't end particularly well. The end of the book of Judges, which comes in the canon immediately before the book of Ruth, the end of the book of Judges is, if nothing else, it's cringeworthy. There is escalating sin among the people of God. There's violence, there's war, there's genocide, and then there's the infamous last line of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and all did what was right in their own eyes. Enter the story of Elimelech's family. Elimelech is Naomi's husband, Ruth's father-in-law. His name literally means, my God is king. We hardly meet him before he dies in verse 3, but the story wouldn't be the same without him because what we know from his name is that things are going to be different. There's a turning point in the story of the people of God. There is a king, and it's a good choice. Way to go, family of Elimelech, right? They, they chose well. And in this particular book of the Bible, God is referred to as Yahweh, which is the name for God in the Exodus story, the powerful God who delivers, the God who makes a way. And I think it's easy to argue that the Exodus story can be considered the central story of the Bible. I believe that even Matthew would agree because he writes to describe Jesus in such a way that we would see Jesus as the new Moses, delivering us from slavery to sin and death. So the name Yahweh, which means powerful deliverer, I think is worth using the Hebrew title because it's so filled with the story, really the stories of our freedom. Elimelech, when Elimelech says, my God is king, we can hear in the story of Ruth, a way will be made. A way to freedom will come about. The thing about the setup for this story is that it's just one strike after another for poor Naomi, right? There's a famine in Bethlehem, where she is from. And Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Who would think that there would be a famine in the house of bread? And yet there is. And so when there's a famine in the house of bread, the, the family goes to Moab, which is like the evil enemy next door of all places to go to. This is a place where you're not supposed to intermarry. Naomi's husband dies. Her sons take Moabite wives, which is at least embarrassing, but it's probably more like disgraceful for Naomi. Then her sons who are named to perish in the disease, Milan and Chilion, to perish in the disease, well, of course, they die too. And the thing that rings true for me in just these opening verses of the book of Ruth is that 
My life experience tells me that things like this happen. Things like famine and death that are beyond my control. And these things change how I live. They change the course of my life. Over the course of my 50 years, I've found myself at times saying, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for this. I don't want it. In fact, I prayed against it. So what do I do now? You know, I see that sometimes when I watch my favorite show, which is the evening news. I feel that way. I also see this when I look back on just the small scale of this last week. I got the stomach flu this week. I didn't want that. And who would think that there would be a lightning and windstorm in my neighborhood when there's a drought and the electricity went out for several hours in my house? I didn't want that either. And then, well, you all know this all too well, I think. Children grow up. That became immediately obvious to me this week. Children grow up. They go to school. They go to college. And no matter how hard I tried to prevent it, they still grew. They became independent. They make their own choices. Often they go out scouting Moabites. I'm not kidding. I stay at home and I think, no, don't do that. Why would you do that? And they do it. They do it anyways. They're that independent. The blessing of bold children who aren't afraid of shame. Who knew that that was a blessing? I didn't know that that was a blessing. (laughs) Yet I think Yahweh knew. Yahweh knew because there is something of this kind of courage in the story of Ruth. Ruth is bold. Ruth is hard to shame. Ruth volunteers to escort her mother-in-law right back to the place where she would definitely not be welcomed. But she's going to go with her anyways. She takes risks. When Ruth acts in this story, often I find myself wincing. Oh, don't do that. But there's an important condition to the risk that Ruth takes. And also to the risks that Boaz take, and Naomi as well, for that matter. And the condition is hesed. The boldness is tempered with hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word that gets translated into English in our Bible often as kindness or loving kindness. But hesed is more than that. Hesed is also an essential part of the nature of God. It's how Yahweh is described as merciful, graceful. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis reminds that this was an unusual way to describe a God in the ancient world. It was revelatory, and maybe it was even a little bit wimpy. Exodus 34 verse 6 says, Yahweh is merciful and gracious of long patience and abounding in hesed and faithfulness. The thing about hesed, and really I think it's lucky for us, is that when you practice hesed, you put the interest of the weaker party above your own. So lucky for us that God does that with us. 
God puts the interests of the weaker party above God's own. Our God isn't just out there for himself or herself, promoting his own sovereign, supreme, mighty power. But instead, our God works for us, and our God works with us. I really like that. But there's a catch. There's something tricky about Hesed. And what's tricky about Hesed, as the story of Ruth implies, is that there's an ecology at work in Hesed. The ecology that's at work is that we are to show Hesed to one another. We are to show loyalty and loving kindness to each other. The kind of mercy that goes beyond what is required. That we put the interests of those who are weaker than us above our own. In chapter 3 of the book of Ruth, there's this PG-13 scene on the threshing floor. But I want you to know that this is not a gratuitous scene. I don't want you to miss where the real action is. The real action is in Hesed. The good that gets separated out on that particular threshing floor is Hesed. It's the ability of two people to interact with one another and with their families in such a way that those who are weaker, that those who are less than, are elevated. When we act with loving kindness, when we put the interests of those who are weaker above our own, when we do this, things shift. And the things that happen in our world that are beyond our control are redeemed. There's a lot of movement in the book of Ruth. It's a traveling book. The characters travel, they change course, they go to Moab, they go back to Bethlehem, they go to the field and the threshing floor, there's a marriage and a baby. And in English, you pick up on the words, go back, or return, or turn back. And some version of that verb shows up 12 times in chapter 1 of Ruth, and then three times in the remaining three chapters of the book. I think that the physical movement of this story points to a spiritual shakeup, to a reorientation that is going on. You know, Ruth isn't a fairy tale. It's an idealistic story that reminds us that we can partner with God to bring in the kingdom of God. That when we act like Yahweh, with loyalty and loving kindness, when we are attentive to those moments when we can turn toward others, when we elevate other people above our own selves, it is as if there's a clearing in the road to deliverance. There's a clearing in the way to freedom. It's not easy work. But I think that one of the most helpful how-to models, how to practice kindness with other people, how to see those who are weaker than we are, is taught by psychologist Richard Beck. He was just here a few weeks ago in San Antonio. He went with us to teach a Bible study at Haven for Hope, and he's written a book called Stranger God. And in his book, Stranger God, he has a model that he calls the circle of affection. 
The circle of affections is to remind us that we are kind to those that we think are like us, that we are kind to those who are inside our circle. He says that the words kind and kin, K-I-N, have the same word origin. And so as, as, um, as we speak, so it, so it is that we act in this particular case. We are kind to those that we think we're kin to, to those that we see as our relatives. Remember just a few weeks ago, we talked about the difficulty with strangers, and we said it was really hard that strangers are difficult because they're strange. Yeah. And so what you do with the circle of affections is that you make that circle, that boundary, wider and wider so that fewer and fewer people are strange. Our goal becomes finding commonality with other people rather than oddity. Just a little at a time, push that boundary of our circle affection so that we are growing our empathy muscles, so that we are seeing ourselves reflected in the lives of every person we come in contact with. We can see some of ourselves in their experience in their life. You know, I think that if the characters of an ancient story, thousands of year, years old, can cross boundaries that are cultural, that are economic, that are spiritual, that we can cross those boundaries too. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are deliverer and ruler of the universe. Your loving kindness never fails. We want to reflect your loyalty and your generosity in the way that we each live our daily lives. So would you grow our spiritual muscles so that we can see ourselves in other people, that we might make connections with your children that others would never think possible, and that you would bring deliverance to all of us. In the name of the one who delivers us from all that seeks to bind us, Jesus the Christ, amen. In the weeks ahead, it's my intention to provide you all with the opportunity to make public your covenant with this particular community of faith, to join the church, to become a member of the church. And sometimes when we talk about church membership, it's a little bit misleading because we talk about it in such a way that this is a club or that this is a storefront where you can get your needs met. And I don't want you to join the church if that's what you're looking for. But I want you to join the church if you want to practice said, if you want to practice loving kindness and loyalty in a community of faith, this might be the place for you. If you want to see God at work, then I want you to stand before us when we're worshiping and uh, make that covenant. So if there's anyone here this morning that has not made that covenant and wants to do that, would you come and stand with me? I'll be right here during this last song, and then we'll make the covenant together after this song. Would you stand as we sing together?